In 2023, we're asking our readers and listeners to join Pellicle in helping us to become profitable. Every month, we pay writers, illustrators and photographers a fair rate for their work. And this is all thanks to our sponsor Hotburns and Black and the hundreds of people who subscribe via Patreon. We want you to help us hit 500 subscribers this year so that we can create a sustainable resource for Pellicle and so that we can continue publishing more written features and more podcasts just like this one. While Pellicle will always remain free to access, we can only keep our magazine and podcast going thanks to the support of our subscribers. So if this sounds like something you can help with, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Mag to sign up. We're determined to produce one of the best drinks magazines out there, and we can only do this with your help. Thanks for listening, and now, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis. In today's episode, I've got a real treat for you. A lengthy panel discussion I recorded towards the end of last year at an event that celebrated 25 years of Manchester's Marble Brewery. And in the panel discussion, we discussed the history of beer in Manchester and Marble's place in that. Now, I'm not going to do my usual lengthy preamble and check-in because this is a very long discussion that lasts almost an hour and a quarter. So to keep things relatively short and snappy, we're going to head more or less straight into the panel discussion, which features some great speakers, including Jason Menzies, who was one of the people at Marble who invited me down to host this discussion. Jason is in charge of events at Marble Brewery. He runs the tap room and their pub, the Marble Arch and has a lot of experience working in hospitality here in the Northwest. We're also joined by my good friend Stephanie Shuttleworth, who for me is one of the most knowledgeable people in beer today. She's currently writing a PhD which looks at beer and pubs, which I'm incredibly excited to see once that comes to fruition. As well as being passionate about beer in Manchester, she's in particular passionate about Oldham, where she is from, and she has written a bit about that for Pellicle. You might have read those articles on our site. And finally, we're joined by John Clark, who's a bit of a legend within the Manchester beer scene. And he is the chair of Stockport and South Manchester Camera, which is my branch. And he has been covering beer in Manchester for well over 25 years. In fact, in researching my new book or forthcoming book, Manchester's Best Beer, Pubs and Bars, I found stuff he was writing about the beer scene in Manchester in the 1990s, which has really helped inform my own writing on the subject. So it was really great to get John on the panel and have his insight into the history of beer in Manchester and the history of Marble Brewery itself and where it fits into the scene today. So we'll head straight into this panel discussion now. I'll be back at the end with my usual goodbyes and information on how you can support our podcast and magazine. Until then, please enjoy this discussion. Welcome, everyone, to this 
live Pellicle magazine podcast here at the Marble Brewery and Tap Room in Salford, where we are going to be discussing the history of beer in Manchester over the last 25 years because it's Marble's 25th anniversary. Can you believe it? Um, founded in 1997 uh, and still one of the most inspiring breweries in the UK today. Uh, and this beer, Double Dry Hop Dobber, this anniversary beer that I'm very pleased to, to see in existence is a, a great indicator of that relevance. So first I'll say cheers everyone and happy birthday Marble Beers. So, sitting closest to me, I'm very excited to have the chair of Stockport and South Manchester Camera, the editor of Opening Times and all-around great beer activist and guy, John Clark. Hello, John. Hello, Matt. <laughs> and in the middle, we have Stephanie Shuttleworth, founder of MASH Beer Marketing Company, a beer writer and a PhD student doing a PhD in psychology around beer and pubs, which is very interesting. Uh, and I might ask you a bit about that in, in a minute. Yes. And uh, to the far side of me, we've got Jason Menzies, the marble taproom manager and the dapper cellarman, I believe, is the, the moniker you go under. Yeah, that was just a, a wee nickname from really overdressing for bar shifts uh, <laughs> a long, long time ago. And it's just stuck as a, as a handle. There's, there's nothing wrong uh, with, with overdressing for bar shifts, I'd say. You've got, you've got to get that fit, I think, as the, the term used by the youth of today. Uh, and I'll move on before I uh, age myself any further. Um, <laughs> the first thing I'd like to ask is just to see how you all are. It's the Pellicle podcast. We like to check in at the start of each episode just to see how everyone's going. So, John, we'll start with you. How are you and, and uh, what beers have you been enjoying recently? Well, I'm fine. Um, uh, very well, thank you. Uh, variety of beers. I, um, three weeks ago, I went to Amsterdam for a week where I went had some uh, fairly crazy beers. Uh, went to something called the Borefs Beer Festival, which is essentially an international sour beer and imperial stout festival when you, uh, when you boil it down to its basics, which was great fun. And a day, I also had a few of us went to a place called Alkmaar to the brewery tap, a brewery called uh, De Merslutel, who specialise in uh, crazy imperial stouts. So that was a fun afternoon as well. Fantastic. And Steph, how are you? And what have you been drinking lately? Um, yes, I'm fine. I, I don't think I've ever given a different answer than, yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess I've been drinking pretty exclusively Millstone Tiger Rot. Um, Cracking beer. I live up in Saddleworth in Oldham, and it's a great beer, but they've also got an absolute grip on that area as they should uh, and then it went off recently in the brass band club that I work in so I had one pint of Carlin with a little bit of lemonade in it yeah. and it was Carlin with lemonade in it yeah. <laughs> you live in Oldham I had no idea know, you never mentioned I know, it I know <laughs> I don't know why that wasn't on the list uh, Jason how are you uh, very well thank you um, so lovely to see everyone that's come down to join us today uh, and this celebratory day of the Dobba and what are you drinking um at the moment, in front of me, I've got um, something that the guys from Alkin uh, brewed up here with us recently um, as on their uh, road to unruin as, as they get um, back on their feet after um, you know, the, the tragedy that happened to their, their brewery. So they came and did uh, a batch up here and we, they, a few cans left over. It's a lovely 4.5% hazy pale, um, which is, is a style that I've been enjoying recently. I've just come back from my honeymoon in, in Wales. We went just around the north coast of Wales and we discovered 
Wild Horse Brewing there from Landudno. Um, Adrian did a piece for Pelico on them, I believe, not so long ago. Um, and yeah, they are the, now my new favorite brewery. Again, yes. Just very clean, uncomplicated, smashable styles. Yes. Takes every box for me. Wild Horse are a fantastic brewery. And it's, uh, Allkin are the resurrected uh, Good Things Brewery who uh, lost their brewery, got struck by lightning. Yeah. They built a brewery in a 17th century barn in Sussex. And it literally got hit by a bolt of lightning uh, and burnt to the ground. But they're back as Allkin Brewing, uh, which is very exciting. Um, before we get on to the meat of my questions, I think it'd be great for the, the audience to know a little bit more about the people I'm talking to and your background in beer. John, you've been campaigning uh, as a, a serious part of camera for, for the best part of uh, two and a half decades. How did you get into that in the first place? How I got into camera? Oh, well... Uh... That goes back, I first joined Camera in uh, 1977. I also say to people, being around the block so many times, I've kind of worn a groove in the pavement. Uh, I, um, a, fr- a friend, a f- funny, there's a well-known beer historian called Ron Pattinson who lives in Amsterdam now. Uh, I went to school with his brother and him, and it was his brother who got me into beer, because I used to live in Buxton when I started work in the early 1970s. And I used to go home to our, Newark, my hometown, which is only about 20 miles from where Matt comes from, funnily enough. And uh, he got me into beer, then I joined Camera, and I got into, you know, cask beer. And then I just sort of got more and more into it. And then a natural progression from that, for me, was uh, getting into uh, other beer styles. Certainly, uh, my first trip to Belgium would be in about 1990-ish which was great because I went on a trip with the High Peak Branch of Camera and we stayed in Halle and I'd never had sour lambics then and I was just kind of thrown in at the deep end. We had a day out, we went to beer sour and went to uh, the old beer sour beers and Driefontaine lambics and all sorts of things and I was just thrown in with those and I just got them straight away. Although after a day on those, I was, I was, defi- I was just wanting something brown and malty to finish the day off with. And I guess got in from then, I just find all types of beer quite exciting and interesting things to talk about and to drink. What brought you to Manchester? Uh, work, <laughs> uh, basically. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I'm retired now. I'm a retired inspector of taxes. You can boo now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I started working in Buxton Tax Office. Then I was transferred to Stockport. Then I was transferred to Manchester. And so that's... And I, I commuted for about a year from... <coughs> From, I commuted for about a year from um, Buxton down to Stockport. And I, I moved to Stockport, and I've lived in Stockport since about 1976, 77, something like that. And that's why I'm here. Fantastic. Uh, Steph, um, how did you get into beer? What brought you to, to end up sitting at this table? I feel like John's story is so nice that maybe I shouldn't say where my actual start in it is, especially after the Carlin story. You had a job in a... In a uh, craft beer bar redacted on Deansgate? Uh, we'll see, that's the second <laughs> controversial point. Uh, the first one was I used to work for a company that owns two nightclubs in Manchester. One is quite famous, 42nd Street nightclub. The second one is the... <laughs> the second one is the slightly cooler, or at least was when indie was a big thing, um, the venue nightclub. Uh, Not the original venue nightclub, but it was named after it, so there is that. Um, And when I started there when I was 19, which was in, I think, 
2011. Um, and I didn't like, I didn't like beer at all, but um, it was one pound for a bottle of Carlin. And that was the beer that people most frequently left behind on the bar when they bought something. So they used to get collected. I can see Matt's eyes being like, where is this going? People used to leave them on the bar and then nobody would ever come back for them. So I used to drink Carlsberg in a cupboard to train myself to like beer. So that was my actual start in beer. Um, but then after that, um, somebody gave, somebody took me to a brew dog on Peter Street and I didn't know that beer could taste that interesting. I think it was a sour beer, but I can't remember. It, I think it might have been a Blitz, not to say too many things about this brewery. But um, yes, yeah, so I then started working for Brewdog. Uh, I worked at Brewdog Manchester, then eventually got sent up to, be, to Edinburgh, the original one, the one on the Cowgate, to be the assistant manager. Very, very quickly became the acting general manager during Fringe Festival. And then I came back home to Manchester after that quite stressful event, uh, to which I was then the brewery office manager for Marble. And this was when Marble were over near the Marble Arch. And it was kind of the everything but the brewing job. There's people from Marble looking at me, so I don't want to like, misrepresent the job. <laughs> it was the everything but the brewing job. The buying the pump clips, the selling the beer, the starting the social media proper, really. Then I got promoted to be the marketing manager. Then I went and set up my own little marketing business, working with just breweries. Um, so doing the same. And I guess that's it. I do write some, some beer writing as well. Yes, you've recently written a great that. piece for Pellicle on foraging for wimberries. Yes, uh, which aren't beer. <laughs> wimberries, uh, which have many names. Also known as blayberries, is bilberries, it's the most common other name. So you can read that on, on yeah. the website, pelliclemag.com. Jason, how did you, what was your journey into beer like? Um, I could probably thank my granddad for, for getting me into beer. Um, he's, he's not with us today, um, but I remember being, being of the age to drink for the first time, um, 33 now, so going back to or probably not even 18 then because it was, um, it was the Aspinall Arms near Clitheroe where I first you know, started having pints with him. And the look he gave me when I asked for a pint of Stella Artois, um, he said, hey, lad, get that shite out. Have some of this down your neck instead. Um, he, he was from uh, near Clitheroe, so that accent is just, I'm doing the PSK thing where he always mixes my Irish. Um, and the, the, the pint that was revelatory for me was a flat cap from Banktop Brewery in Bolton, uh, 4% pale and again I w was amazed by this new flavor that I was discovering because up until that point my experience uh, of beer much like Steph's had just been like the homogenized commercial macro lagers that um, are all just yeah um, so from from there uh, like I knew that Cascale was was the drink for me and all through my, my time at uni in Manchester I would always be seeking out little gems, such as you know the Marble Arch, the Crown and Kessel, Britain's Perception, which we'll probably speak more about those pubs later. After uni, came home, tried to get boring nine to five office jobs. Nothing was was really sticking. 
So the 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 landlord of the new inn in Codro, who was uh, a family friend of ours, said, "Oh, I'm looking to take a step back, going into semi-retirement. Could do with an assistant manager. You know your stuff. You've done bar work. Come along." So I ended up staying there for eight years. Uh, it's a pub that I, I know Matthew knew it very well. It is uh, a gem. You could actually just pick it up and, and plonk it into Manchester. It would fit seamlessly. It's uh, just a beautiful centuries-old pub where barely anything has been changed or rearranged in it. It is an absolute time capsule of a place. If you're ever over that neck of the woods, uh, go check it out. And then from there, um, Boland Brewery, which is the, um, the well, the only brewery in Clodero, um bought a derelict cotton mill in Clodero. Um Multi-million pound refurbishment of the site, put a, a massive bar in there, hotel, shops, a huge, huge development. Uh, and yeah, it went down there to be the bar and cellar manager for, for six years. Um, it was quite fortunate to have a bit of carte blanche of which suppliers I got to, to choose to, to buy from to stock that bar. Uh, and if you go in, it's an insane amount of hand pulls, but it is, I, I want it to be a, a veritable who's who of who are the ca best cast producers in the north of England. So, of course, Marvel features on it quite heavily, um, but also the likes of Neptune, Red Willow, Rivington, I, I, could, I could go on. But through that, um, it's actually how I got in touch with Matthew and became friends with him and, and created lots of um, contacts and friends in the, in the trade as well. And now, uh, here I am at Marvel, doing, well, running the tap room, covering the social media whilst our Kate's on maternity leave, uh, doing a bit of the marble arch as well, and just little bits in between. Just uh, like Steph said, you just you end up doing everything really, apart from brewing, which is not, again, to misrepresent marble, knowing that <laughs> one of the company directors is sitting over there, but um, no, it's a very democratic team-led company where everyone chips in, everyone shares knowledge, talent, and that, and there's always opportunities to get more experience, more notches under your belt and learn new skills and qualities all the time. So I'm loving it here right now because I get to do just that. Okay, so we're here. The, the main reason we're here this afternoon is to talk about the, this brief history of uh, the recent history of beer in Manchester. And when I say Manchester, today I mean Greater Manchester. We're sitting in Salford. Uh, the city of Manchester has a vibrant beer and bar scene, but now there's, there's breweries in, in Bolton and Wigan and Oldham. The whole scene has... And Stockport, <laughs> of course, and Stockport. The whole scene has, has really exploded. Um, and, you know, putting aside London, which is a very big place, not many other metropolitan areas have really seen a beer explosion quite like Manchester, especially recently. So my first question, and we'll go to you, John, is what do you think it is about Manchester that's given it this ability to cultivate such a, a diverse and vibrant beer scene? Well, that, that is a very good question. Uh, there's always been, I think, a spirit of enterprise in Manchester. It's interesting. I was looking in the uh, 1998 Good Beer Guide, which came out, 25 years ago, and at the time there were 15 breweries in Greater Manchester, uh, seven of which have now closed, and similarly there were about a similar number in Greater London. 
So today... Le- le- I can, less, actually. There were 10. Because yeah. I've been corrected by Desdemore uh, many times on that number. So Manchester already had more breweries than London. Uh, now we have around 90. It fluctuates a bit, uh, for almost from week to week. Uh, but, <clears throat> so, but I think there's always... I think people have always been... There's been an active beer scene in Manchester for a long time. I mean, you've got to go back pre-marble days. We had the famous um, West Coast Brewery in Chorton on Medlock. A guy called Brendan Dobbin set this up. He was arguably one of the first people in the, the country to experiment with American hops. There were a couple of others going on at the same time. So we've had lots of pioneering breweries along the way that have done interesting things first or be, or be in the vanguard of various trends. And I just think it, it ties in like the Manchester music scene as well. I think it's, there's been a spirit of enterprise and innovation and prepared to do, th- and prepared to do things a bit differently. And, and I think that's it's be, been reflected in other things over Manchester's whole history. And I think that's reflected in the beer scene today as well. It, definitely. Manchester's always had this ability to... Um, not only pick up on global trends, yeah. but make them very much its own, whether it's the sound of, of the music its bands are making or, or the beers it's creating, being one of the first cities to use American hops, actually uh, the first city in the UK to produce a, a New England-style IPA more recently. That, you know, it's always been at the forefront. Steph, what is it for you about Manchester that, that makes it this, this vibrant, interesting, innovative beer scene? I was just listening to John thinking, I'm really glad you asked John, because I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess but it's, we, it has always been a hub for culture. I think the, the aspect of having music here has, has helped because it always brings creatives. You tend to get, I find, a lot of people who have worked full-time or within the music industry or have had at least something to do there is a massive crossover with the amount of like really good bar managers or small brewery owners or people sales for them or often brewers as well who have also been gig promoters. That's quite often. So I think like the music has helped as well. Plus geographically, um, I didn't think I'd mention this, but the way in 1974 when Greater Manchester was created, um, it chopped off a bit of uh, Lancashire. I'm looking at John, the person who's much better at history than me. Lancashire, Yorkshire, and Cheshire as well, with Manchester as the hub in the middle. So it was a, a very prosperous city with areas of industry all around it. So there was money, jobs, and people with jobs and a bit of money want to spend it on beer. So music, and it wasn't completely deprived is the opinion that I have just formed. <laughs> John, you feel primed to add something to that? Uh, not really, uh, but I, I, it just, I mean, I wasn't in Manchester in 1974. I was in Buxley in 1974. But yes, I mean, Manchester is quite interesting, isn't it? Because the city of Manchester is geographically quite small, but Greater Manchester, with all these satellite towns, each with its own individual character, uh, as they were all welded together, so they brought quite an interesting mix to what became Greater Manchester. And I think over the years, whilst they've all preserved their own identities, they've also added to the general <coughs> culture of Greater Manchester. And certainly on the beer scene, I mean, Greater Manchester is the only area of the country which still has four old-style family brewers still brewing. 
Uh, and that itself is unique. And I think the fact that we've for a long time had, courtesy of those, a strong independent brewing scene historically has also fed through into this strong independent brewing scene we've got today. Jason, why do you think Greater Manchester has become such a hub for, for fantastic beer in the UK? Well, the water's really good, which helps. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I'm totally in agreement with, with what Steph and, and John have said, but I also think just re reflecting on what makes up Manchester's sort of population, not just now, but also historically, it's always been a very diverse population, even back in the, the Victorian days where it was in Manchester's industrial heyday. Uh, and it's always been a very working class majority town where they are, they have always been very, very vocal, very organized, very community based. And I feel that brings out the most creative minds in that where everyone does pitch in for the sake of the greater good that sort of creativity and also sort of pride of your heritage, where you come from, what you do, what you create, what you work, they're all things that I feel are in the mindset of really good brewers. Because whilst brewing is, of course, inherently very, very scientific, it's an art form as well, in terms of you are designing something from to with a purpose of creating pleasure, with a creating joy, of bringing people together in a, in a community spirit in the same way that an artist would when they're designing painting or a band would when they're writing a song for a performance. So I think that is just part of the lifeblood of Manchester as a city, always has been and always will be. So like we have produced these great artists, musicians, filmmakers, etc., we've created these same brews as well. That is just what Manchester as a, as a concept just does. It breeds these amazing creative folk. Yes, I definitely agree with that. I'm just digging into some of the older history. Something that's absolutely fascinating to, about Manchester and its, and its beer history is that uh, during the 60s and 70s, when most of the family-owned breweries were acquired uh, around the UK, uh, the four Man Greater Manchester family brewers, uh, Holtz, Hydes, Robinsons, and J.W. Lees, survived. I'm interested to get... Uh, your opinion, uh, John. Why do you think Manchester survived? I have a note here, actually, that says boring beers. Um, and I will, I'll, I'll uh, elaborate on that, as in they make beers that are... They do not provoke a lot of thought in that they are, in the background, very nice and easy to drink. But why do you think there's this, uh, you know... Because that, that's almost like a foundation for Manchester as a brewing city with four family brewers... Well, as, as opposed, you know, even London only had one left. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's... Um, I imagine every... The surviving ones, because don't forget we had Oldham Brewery as well, who Boddington's bought. And Boddington's were for a long time a family brewery, although they were quoted on the stock exchange. They were still run by the Boddington family. So you could argue, until recent times, till well, the 80s, we perhaps had six... Why did the four we've still got? Well, I think it's they probably all had bids slapped on the table. They probably all had lots of bids slapped on the table from time to time. And it's probably sheer bloody-mindedness, really. Uh, I think that's what it boils down to. Now, we... <clears throat> I mean, I, I know the Robinsons pretty well, and I, I, I know people from the other breweries, 
And I think they, they, they view these as not some asset to be sweated. We view this is something we have got, we hold in trust for the future generations. And that ethos runs right across the whole families who, uh, who uh, own these companies. And you mentioned boring beer, but I think a lot of the, a lot of the breweries now are, um, the families are starting to catch up a little bit and produce perhaps more interesting, exciting beers. Uh, I know uh, Highs have just produced something called uh, Hopster, which is uh, a sub 4%, very hoppy pale ale with lots of mon hops in. Robinson's have produced something called uh, Citra Pale, which will be coming back into their permanent range next year. And they're all making lots of, they're starting to really uh, attune to the market more. But at the same time, they have a difficult path to tread because they also have large tide estates where a lot of the people who frequent those tide estates want to drink the beers they've always drunk. So they have to try and both to appeal to their existing trade and also appeal to outside trade. Well, I think it's quite interesting that a lot of these, the four breweries, don't really now pursue free trade all that much. They concentrate on their tide estates and doing what they do very well. And if they introduce innovation, innovation is probably in their time to state. So they're probably bringing their existing drinkers with them on a bit of a journey. But they have to do it slower than perhaps some of the breweries like Marble can do because they have to, they have a bigger state and they have to bring people with them rather than throw things out and say, hey, this is brand new. We hope you like it. They have to be a bit more cautious. But I don't think caution has been a bad thing because they've all... They're still with us. They've survived COVID. They looked at, all four of them very much looked after their pubs and their tenants during the lockdowns. So, uh, yes, caution in both a good way and a bad way, I think, has been why they've survived. And Steph, looking at the other side of this history to, to now, and we've got 90-ish breweries here in Greater Manchester, uh, many at the sort of cutting edge of what you would call modern beer. What is it about Manchester's history you feel has has allowed that to thrive well I think about it I would just kill time by saying I can't believe I was wasn't the first person to bring up Alden Brewery like I was just holding it in to be like just hold out as long as you can would you like to tell us a bit about Alden Brewery and its significance apologies Steph I feel like John would probably know more but (laughs) it's the Nobody, nobody ever seems to be from Oldham, apart from Carl as well, who I can see, who's ruining the point. But yeah, yeah, Carl is there as well. Um, Yeah, so the four family brewers are quite well spread out, but there's a little bit of a gap in that Oldham used to have its own brewery, and now we've sort of been adopted by J.W. Lee's. Um, Yeah, Oldham Brewery used to make Oldham Bitter, which I've never tasted, but would really, really like to at some point, because it was apparently legendary. And it was bought by Boddington's, who then, I can't believe I'm telling this story, I was trying so hard not to, but I've been asked about it, Um, that Boddington's bought it, but then when Boddington's moved to Germany, is it Germany, John? Is that where they've gone? No. Okay. Boddington's were, they're part of Anheuser-Busch InBev, uh, based in Belgium and Brazil. Is that where the brewery production went after Strange Ways? Boddington's promised to keep Oldham open for five years, which they duly did then closed it down and brewed Oldham Bitter at Strange Ways Brewery. Right. Uh, but I did actually go round Oldham Brewery when it was open. Oh. It was great. Uh, but they didn't make... They, they'd started phasing out Caspia, then started phasing it back in. But to you, Oldham Bitter was uh, very good, although I was... 
I went, it was a mate of mine who came from the black country and he came, I w had a day out with him in Oldham because he was going to a football match to watch West Brom play Oldham and we went to a couple of o OB pubs and it was a lovely beer and, but he always took the rip out of me for saying I do believe there's a hint of passion fruit in the aftertaste which he never let me forget uh, but uh, they, it was good beer and their dark mouth was very good too and in fact they did a strong ale called Old Tom and I've still got a bottle of that at home Is that so Robinson's owned the recipe for Oldham Bitter now, I think. Is that where they got Old Tom from as well? Oh, no. Uh, their Old Tom was a generic name for a lot of strong beers produced by a lot of beer, breweries in the north of England, historically. Oh, cool. Weirdly. I, I did not know that. Well, anyway, I think the reason, one of the reasons there are a lot now is it's very interesting to bring Oldham Brewery up with it compared to the rest of the other family brewers because I think it is... Part of partly the family brewers setting the tone for the city centre and around it, in that they didn't sell out to the larger companies, which meant that they kept their tied pubs to that one brewery. Which means there's an entire estate of four different independent businesses across that area, which then seemingly has fostered, I think, both a culture of either free houses or pubs that are free enough to be able to choose their own beer. Um, still remaining, particularly in the city centre as well. And then, because we haven't got used to just having, like, Weatherspoons and all of the different versions that look like Weatherspoons but aren't quite Weatherspoons, because of that, there's still enough diversity of pubs around that it then fosters more of them to appear. I, th I think it's notable that Manchester has a lot of brewery tap rooms, or did, that were in railway arches and micropubs, that kind of thing, like... In the Arndale, in the market, the micropub called Microbar, Micropub, Microbar, has been there for a really long time. Whereas micropubs seem like a novel, a novelty, like a new thing in other places. Whereas seemingly, like we've had it for quite a long time, so it's just the infrastructure's there and the ideas are already there. So it's just a little leap to something else new and cool. The infrastructure's definitely there, but um, as you know, I've lived in Manchester for two years, so you know, I still feel relatively like an outsider, despite the welcome being incredibly warm. But it's more philosophically, it's, it's in the blood. Like, there's, like you cut someone from the Northwest and they bleed bitter, or they might bleed New England IPA, you know, depending on what they like. But there, there seems to be, yes, the infrastructure is here from the family brewers, but there seems to be something almost deeper that, that beer is uh, a meaningful occupa occupation uh, here in the Northwest, Jason, do you feel that beer is a, a meaningful occupation? Yeah, oh yeah, of course, and it is. It is. Having spent my whole adult life working in and around beer, um, you know, just harking back to, to what we said before about how it's it's rooted in like working class community and creativity. Um, it, it's something to to be in, in, incredibly proud of because you want to sh show it off and, and share it. You know, um, if, I don't know, you're a brickie, for example, and you've built a really lovely wall, of course, you might take a snap and show your mates or whatever, but then you're going to go ahead and build several of the walls with the same bricks and the same mortar. Um, you know, beer's a lot more, pardon the, pardon the turn of phrase, but fluid than that. So, and it encourages a lot more, you know, s scope for just really pushing the boundaries. Whilst we were talking then about the, uh, these historic family brewers, I just wish I could hop back in time or bring them forward to today and see what they think about the beers that we are drinking now. 
and what they would think of something that's such a hazy yellow, incredibly hot, almost to a point of spiciness where it's... Well, we can ask John. Yeah, so far removed. How do you, like, like, how would people drinking in the 70s, if you sort of went, try this, double dry hop dobber, Oh, they do run a mile, <laughs> uh, basically. Uh, I mean, beer, beer was pin bright for a long time. It's only, uh, well, the past 10 years, if that, that uh, hazy, unfine beers have become a thing. Mm. Although, anecdotally, I'm told that um, a Holt, certainly in the north of Manchester, Holtz drinkers used to think that um, Holtz was best if it had a slight haze. And I am told there was, a, I, I really hope this is true, the licensee of one pub, that if his beer was too clear, he'd go down the cell and give his bowels a bit of a kick. Uh, to, to, and I suspect that might not be true, but I really want it to be true. Uh, but yeah, they, they'd run a mile. I mean, I mean it's only until, what, ooh, 10 years ago, perhaps more, <coughs> that beer, unfined beer, has become a thing. Uh, yeah, back in the day, it would be uh, rejected. And of course, beer with this ex- amount of hoppiness in it was pretty much unknown too, you know. Uh, even, even things like Boddington's Bitter, which were bitter beers, and Holt's Bitter, which used to be much more bitter than it is, <clears throat> were nothing like this. Yeah, indeed. In fact, you know, back then, most of the hop, if not all of the hop varieties used in this beer would not even have been cultivated yet. You know, they, they came about only in the last two decades, really. Um, so um, we should really get on to talking about the wonderful marble and I think something that's really would be nice to talk about maybe is each of our first experiences of a, of a marble beer. And John, I'm going to come to you last on this, but I, I didn't experience my first marble beer until 2010, and it was Dobber. Living in London at the time, I'd just come back from this trip to the US and I'd experienced American IPAs for the first time. And I went online, and there was this shop uh, called My Brewery Tap, and I ordered everything on that website that was listed as an American IPA. Um, one of them is now very popular supermarket beer, lower ABV than it used to. Um, and another one was called Jaipur, uh, which I understand is very popular. Yeah, and I've then uh, another one was called Dobber. And uh, the Dobber uh, was, was so great that I immediately put in an, an order for another six bottles and it came in the big 500 mil bottles. Uh, and it was really like, wow. Because in my head I was like, oh, UK brewers aren't doing what the US brewers are doing. Uh, but I was, like I am about a lot of things when I make an assumption the first time, I was very wrong. Um, so, th- yeah, it was really interesting to come to Marble and then not long after that I came on a trip to Manchester to deliberately drink marble beers and, and drink uh, in the Marble Arch, which was, which was you know, quite something. Something I take for granted now, it's just down the road. Um, Jason, what was your first, first experience of marble beers like? It was actually when I was working at the New Inn in Clitheroe, and you, you just mentioned before how sort of unfined beers, whilst relatively new on scene, took time to be accepted. Uh, I remember quite distinctly having pint and ginger on cask in the new inn. And this would have been late late 2000s, maybe early 2010s. Um, 
and people, certainly in Clitheroe, which is a, a bit less progressive than Manchester, uh, they just weren't ready for it. They were blown away. It was like, no, it should be pin bright. I should be able to do the Times crossword through this pint. I, you know, it's hazy. There's something wrong with it. Send it back to the brewery. They've, they've messed it up. Um, but hang on a minute. Just taste it. Just smell it. Just don't drink with your eyes for a moment. And then, like, the penny dropped. And, again, I was, at that point in my life, in this exploratory part where I'm discovering, oh, there are more than one brewery. There are things, this is local and all that. And I'm going through all these motions. So for that to come along and say, oh, beer doesn't have to look a certain way or it doesn't have to taste like beer. It can be infused with ginger, for example. So that was just a, a massive opening of the floodgates in, in my mind of what beer could be. Um, so that, you know, marble, without having any inkling that one day I'd work for them, was a massive stepping stone into really discovering what uh, beer was, was actually capable of after I'd only really recently in my life discovered that, oh, it's not all crap warm lager. So Dobber was the second... What was it? No, Dobber was the first canned beer I ever had. And that was a bit later on. This would have been 2017-18, so when the, the brew was still in the, in the Ooh, railway. That might have been the one I helped brew. Quite possibly. <laughs> um, yeah, thinking of the timeline, 20th anniversary, so quite, yeah, quite, quite possibly. And um, I needed to get a train from Manchester to Sheffield, and I called into Beermoth on the way to Piccadilly. And I was just thinking, right, how long is the train? How much cash have I got? Right, okay. About an hour and 10 minutes, and I've got 20 quid. So I am just buying by ABV at that point. Of like, how drunk can I get before I get there? Because I'm still like in that student mindset. <laughs> Even though I graduated a long time ago. Economies of scale. Sometimes you've just got to be daft. Um, but I had this stopper. I cracked it open. And again, I was just like... Oh my God, why am I not actually like writing hymns praising how good Marvel is? I, after that first revelatory life experience with them, then I had another one. So the first thing I did when I got to Sheffield was go to, and I forget the name of it, there's that little tiny bottle shop in the market. Oh, Hop Hideout? Yes. What have you got? And at the time, they were bringing out a series of, of beers in 330ml cans that were um, sort of named after famous women from history. Uh, Melissa Cole did one as a collab. Um, again, I've still got the can at home. Uh, something to do with Godiva. We'll look at it later. But yeah, again, I'll just like search them out. I will say, by helping to brew, I turned up at the original brewery, not this one, at 8 a.m., an hour late, because I was told to be there for seven, with a stinking hangover, and JK, the head brewer at the time, just handed me a shovel and said, you've got some digging to do, because he'd been <laughs> brewing there since very early in the morning. Thankfully, it was an early finish. Um, Steph, how did you come to, to Marble Beer? And uh, to elaborate on that, in, like, how did that impact your opinion on, on the beer scene in Manchester? So I, I was just trying to track it back then. I think, I think Dobber was the first marble beer that I ever drank as well. 
which was very ironic given it became such a big part of my job as the salesperson trying to sell Dobber when everybody said they wanted it, but it was just disappearing and then bringing it back with Matt and doing that whole campaign. That So I, I think I found Marble, again, linking it through, <clears throat> through a micropub, uh, 57 Thomas Street, when it was just the tiny little bar at 57 Thomas Street, and the offices used to be above... The, the offices are in the brewery now, for anyone who doesn't know, the, the back house of Marble. Um, that I... At that point, I think I had drank some sour beers. I had definitely had Goose Island, and I forget which one, but it was just before Goose Island had sold out, and Brooklyn Lager. And then I was working a marketing job. This was the very, the very brief part of my CV that I never mentioned because it's never interesting. I used to do marketing for an assistive technology charity, which is very interesting, but not to beer people. Um, so I, after work, would go to pubs and would go on the internet to try and find different jobs. Um, and that is how I eventually ended up working in beer. But I went into 57 Thomas Street, and I remember it was a very tall man with curly hair, who I now know is Gasby, who works at Pomona. I think he still works at Pomona. Um, yeah, sold me what in hindsight was a terrible recommendation because it was the most bitter, like more than I was expecting beer like ever. I was just not ready for it. So it was just so much flavor for me. But then through that, I, out of embarrassment, drank it and built myself back up to it. But I also <laughs> did that through uh, Ginger, which is also a marble beer, which has disappeared and come back for the birthday, and chocolate as well. They were much softer beers to drink. Um, but that was just before I ended up working for Brewdog and then getting sent to Edinburgh. And there's actually way, way back on my Instagram, a sort of like sad, embarrassing early 20s um, homesick picture of me holding a bottle of marble chocolate, being like, I just want to go home. And then um, I managed to get a job to come home working in a cocktail bar that I never got to start because they never asked me if I was cocktail trained and I wasn't. Um, and in my notice period, I, I should have been managing this bar, by the way, in my notice period, I then got offered a job at Marble to be the brewery office manager. So I'd gone from Gaz's recommendation that was far too complicated to me while I was trying to find a job um, to then being homesick, drinking Marble to want to come home. And then Marble was like the brewery that sort of gave me my, not my ticket back home to Manchester, but the ticket that didn't involve me very quickly being find out, found out at not being able to make cocktails. That's a very complicated story, sorry. <laughs> John, you have experienced beer in Manchester for uh, a long time now. What was it like? What was that initial feeling, if you can recall, in 97 when this new brewery had opened? What were your expectations? Well, uh, back then, new breweries opening were quite an event. Uh, less so these days, of course. Uh, and, of course, uh, with so few breweries in Greater Manchester at the time, getting somewhere new opening. Uh, I mean, I'd known the Marble Arch for a long time. In fact, I first went to the Marble Arch before it was the Marble Arch when it was, all the interior was covered over. I can't remember what that was like because it was the end of a long day's pub call with some friends of mine. Uh, and I remember when the Marble Arch became the Marble Arch, this guy, John Worthington, bought it. 
took all this plasterboard off and uncovered what we know today. So I was familiar with the Marble Arch. Uh, when uh, it was changed hands again, Jan was there, and it, uh, when the brewery opened, it was really exciting, especially as that the brewery was installed by um, Brendan Dobbin, who uh, had been of West Coast Breweries. So that was another exciting aspect to it. Uh, and, and the beers were you know, exceptional from the start. Uh, so yes, I mean, I, I was there, I was at the Marble at the launch, and I've followed it <coughs> ever since. So it, it's, it's moved around from the back of the Marble Arch to down the road to Gould Street and now over here, and it's grown and got more confident and brewed a bigger range of beers. Uh, I remember when it went organic, which was fun, because organic ingredients were very thin on the ground. And I know... Still are in terms of beer. Well, organic, well, organic chocolate marble had... Uh, there was no organic chocolate malt or anything like that around, so it had uh, organic cocoa powder in it. So that was probably the first really hazy beer I had because um, it, was, it did look like actually a pint of cocoa rather than uh, chocolate marble. But then they did um, chalk and come hazy uh, and things like that. So uh, in a way, Marble pioneered hazy beers, but then uh, because the fashion wasn't really for hazy beers then, uh, they, uh, they got away, they, they, they got away to make them drop bright. James Campbell came in as brewer and he said, well, the first thing I'm gonna do is make the beers drop bright because people wanted bright beers then. Uh, and, and they did. But uh, yes, I, I've been at Mar I've followed Marble all the way along at all, every time of beers, all the new beers. Uh, I mean, I was talking to Colin, Colin Strong, one of the former, one of the former star brewers there. I was, um, uh, I first had Dobby before it was called Dobby. It was named after Brewlet. We can't quite remember what it was called. Um, but uh, one New Year's Eve, we sat in the window of the Marble Arch, chewed the cud and drank lots and lots of Dobber and, uh, it was the first time for ever that I'd never been out on New Year's Eve. I just went home and kind of passed out, basically. <laughs> uh, but but uh, yeah, it's, it's great. So I, I've followed Marble all the way through, and it's been a hugely exciting experience, really, to see it from a tiny little brew pub to what we see today. And how do you feel Marble has influenced brewing in, in Manchester as, as an entity because it kind of came at the start of what you would call, what I like to call the mid-wave because we have, we've had the last 10 years where everything's kind of gone mad uh, as, uh, except for now because everyone's running out of money. Um, but how, how, how did Marble lay a platform for Manchester to become a modern beer city, do you think? Well, uh, ever since the launch 25 years ago, Marble's always been there and it's always perhaps been a point of reference and I'm sure the fact that Marble started and was successful and showed people what could be done, they obviously must have acted as an inspiration to a lot. I mean, there's a general atmosphere in the country, in the beer scene nationally. No, more breweries, there's more excitement building. But in Manchester, <coughs> excuse me, Marble was a point of reference. Marble was there uh, paving the way. I'm sure the fact that Marble showed, well, we can do this, other people thought, oh, well, we can do it as well. So, yes. There's definitely something intrinsically Mancunian about that, isn't there? Like, if someone's doing something really well, there will be someone else in the city going, well, I think I can do it a little bit better. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> healthy yeah, absolutely. healthy one-upmanship. Yeah, I think so. For the most I, part. In a way, that's perhaps why we have such a great beer scene now. 
Steph, how do you feel Marble has, has laid a platform for, for beer in Manchester? I'd, what, would I, it look like, what would it look like without Marble? I think that one-upmanship thing is definitely a big part of it in that, um, that everybody in Manchester, we all like to outdo each other. And then the minute that anybody from outside Manchester comments on one of us, everyone sort of groups together to say, no. This yeah, is, this if someone from London does something, it's suddenly like, yeah. hang on. <laughs> yeah, it's like we, we can all argue within ourselves, but then if somebody from outside says anything, then we'll say, yeah, hang on, stay there. Which, <laughs> which I think then does build like this good level of competition. Plus also it's of the level of inspiration of, I guess this is what you were saying, John, but I guess even more like on a, on a, like a, a staff person level like there's only working within small businesses there's only so much that you as an individual person can do you end up like it's sad but you end up like topping out I think I think that's the way of saying it unless I've just accidentally said something rude (laughs) that um you end up like topping out of the job so people then move and go to different breweries and then train and everybody basically there's loads of people that have all worked for Marble that all work for different companies now I think that's been one of the reasons as well. Jason, what, what would Manchester's beer scene look like if, if Marvel wasn't around, do you think? Like a frozen lake on Mars. Lifeless, cold, and just an empty void. Uh, and why is that? What, what, what influence has Marvel passed on into, into Manchester, do you think? Well, Steph's absolutely right in, in, in what she said, that um, you know, Marvel's got this great... Uh, a, you know, set of alumni that have come through here, not just here we are, where we are now in Salford, but at the, at the Arch and um, at the Railway Arch Brewery. Like, you know, we've, we've got Colin who's sitting with us today, who is now best known for, for salt. They are just huge. They are, you know, one of the top dogs in the craft sector. Then uh, Dominic, for, who's of course more famous for Thornbridge, but then you look to like Rob Hamilton, who founded Blackjack. Um, Polly Walks, who's, uh, I think he's with Brewdog now. Uh, I get confused because there's just so so many. Of course, Dan, who's at Wonder Beyond. You know, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, almost a rite of passage in beer in Manchester to to pass through the doors of, of Marble. Yeah, you've um, got Matt Howgate, who was head yeah, brewer, who's head brewer of vocation Matt, now. Yeah, yeah. A vocation, of course. They're just, you know. Um, and that's, uh, you know... I think that's just a testament to the, the, the team culture that is within Marble, where if you're coming in, in here to get a job, you're not just doing one thing. You're not just gonna you're not just gonna top out within you know a short period of time. They're gonna load you with as much knowledge, skills, and experience as they can and say, right, okay. Here is you've learned not everything that we know now, but everything that we've ever known. Everyone's passed through here. That knowledge is shared, it's stored, and it's, it's passed on through. You know, we can say now that Marvel has been going along, that there are generations of it. And of course, we've got that ambition to do 25 years more as well and, and to carry on going and become that constant and be remembered in the future like the way that Lees and Holtz and Hyder are remembered. You know, that's what we want to be in the, in the future. Um, so yeah, Marble is in, in incredibly influential in, in creating that Manchester beer scene because they arrived, I think, it's a combination of just the right time and just the right 
know-how? Because, John, you mentioned Brendan Dobbin, of course. Um, I, I put Brendan along with, um, you know, at the time, Roosters and uh, Oakham. They were the, the other two, again, not situated in Manchester, but again, importing these American hops that revolutionised brewing in the UK, in, in the craft sector. Um, and again, the pockets around where those breweries are situated, you also see lots of other ones that have followed in suit saying, what you've done is really cool, really influential, we want to learn from you so we can do it ourselves. The competitive one-upmanship yeah, that is there, but not in an undercut the other one sort of way because we all help each other. We all give each other a hand. Like our neighbours here down in Salford, we've got Seven Brothers, we've got uh, Pomona Island, just the other side of Wee Cemetery. Like, of course, like we want to know what they're up to, what you're brewing, what kind of hot contracts you got, how's it going. But if they ever need anything, they knock on our doors, and I'm sure we'll share that with you. And just the same with us, you know, if we're, we're short or something, whether it's just an ingredient or an equipment, then, then we ask around. We always help each other out because whilst there is that wanting to be the best, the best beer that, that is going and be recognized for that, if everyone else is having a go, sure, come on. It's not about pushing other people down. It's about bringing them up because if everyone's getting that, bigger slice of the pie than the calling with lemonade isn't. But there's nothing wrong with the calling and lemonade. I think, I think we should say that for the record. There's a time and a place for everything. There is. There is. <laughs> so I had all these questions in my notepad here about um, the uh, current financial climate, but I feel we've been speaking for almost an hour, and I feel like if I start opening that can of worms, we will be here for another hour. And there is another talk scheduled to happen after this one. So I'll ask, I want to ask you folks one more question, and then what I'll do is I'll, if you've got any questions in the audience, um, I'll, uh, I'll ask and I'll come out to you with the microphone so you can ask our, our panel, but also so we can record it for the folks listening at home. But what I'm going to do is ask you a question. So what, I think we should all assume in this room, I think we would all agree that the beer scene in Manchester is the best one in the UK. Uh, and I think, I, th I think that's uh, an easy argument to make, in my opinion. Um, Jason, let's start with you and work, work our way back towards me. Okay. On that assumption, why do you think Manchester is the best beer scene in the UK? What makes it so special? To, to tie in sort of everything that we've said so far about what Manchester is as a city and, and, and greater than that geographical space, what Manchester is as a concept, you've got just a conglomeration of just amazing, brilliant minds all working towards the same goal, which is making it better for everyone, not just a commercial endeavor or pursuit that benefits one person or a board or just a small bunch of benefactors, but something that everyone can enjoy. I think everyone that brews in Manchester, every operator that has a bar or a pub or a venue, whatever, has that same goal. Let's do something for everyone and let's make it the place that we would want it to be ourselves. Let's, you know, if you've, you've got a beer, let's brew a beer that we know that we'd be proud of and share with our friends, with our family, with our peers or colleagues. If we're opening a pub, let's make it the one that we'd be proud to invite those same people into 
that that mindset, I think that's ingrained in the psyche of, of Manchester as a city and that applies to beer itself. Right now, it is a wonderful, amazing time for beer. I know it's very easy to be pessimistic about the future, but we're seeing that if you know if a window is closing, a door is opening. It's, it's constantly in flux, but Manchester, of course, will always do what it does best, which is survive and thrive. I think that's a, that's a great answer. And anecdotally, I'd like to share something. I was recently um, at my hometown, Lincoln, uh, to visit this this pub called the Straight and Narrow, and I was chatting with the owners, and they are on Lincoln High Street, pretty much the only independently owned operator that does food or drink on Lincoln High Street. And there's a couple of reasons. One, that the Lincoln Council aren't really interested in supporting uh, independently owned businesses because the chains are more reliable. There was a Franco Manker opening as I, as I walked the way to the pub. But also people are wary uh, of these independent businesses. And I was saying, well, Manchester, like, you can't move for independently owned businesses. And more, more often than not, you'll walk into a place and you know, the people who own it will be behind the bar serving the beers. And it's really interesting how just a, you know, a few miles away, it's not really not that far, uh, the, the, the different attitude towards not just beer, but uh, hospitality and pubs. And, and I think there's, that, there's a desire, in, if you're in Manchester, to seek out interesting, weird, in a good way, different places. Steph, what, what for you uh, are the elements that, that make Manchester this, this special beer place? I think, of course, it's, of course it's the breweries, of course it's the pubs, but I also have realised, I can't believe we've got this far without saying it, like, it's the drinkers. <laughs> The, the, yeah, the drinkers of Manchester, which... Give yourselves a round. Yeah. <laughs> Pat on the back. Save the, save the applause for later. Yeah. Um, and everybody who works in the pubs and works at the breweries, we're also the drinkers. There is a nice fluid line between the people who work in the industry, be that breweries or pubs, and the drinkers that we all kind of mix together. And that, that is great. And I think that fosters a really good culture. I think also the I, I guess if it maybe again something to do with the family brewers not allowing us to lose our heritage and our assets is that the drinkers of Greater Manchester have got quite high standards. We want to drink the beers that we want to drink, and we want to drink them in the places that we want to. And it's those communities that foster like a really good culture as well. And it's interesting that those high standards they, they that pushes the standards further because of this mixture of like one-upmanship but, yeah. but expectation if, if you if you're not serving good beer you won't hang around for long yeah yeah people will people definitely have their own pubs and people are regulars of certain places but if it slips they will move and that helps to keep the standards up as well and even uh, like so greater manchester has a pretty vibrant, not pretty, has a very vibrant camera scene as well, who I would put in the, the drinker set, who have also done a lot as well, that Manchester Beer and Cider Festival is massive. I mean, it's not quite as big as the Great British Beer Festival, but like we, if we can have such a big beer festival in Manchester that nips at the heels of it, and that people come from all over the country too. That is brilliant. And having worked marketing in a lot of different breweries who especially aren't from Manchester, that is like the main camera festival that either they want to be at or that I explain to them, even not as a camera member myself, I'm a never camera member so far, that that's the one to be at 
and it's because of the drinkers. I, I don't know how many people come through, but it's a lot. So the people. I want. I nearly said we are mint, but then I didn't want to be putting myself in it. So they are mint. Now women, women. I'm a camera member. Yeah. John, John is the chair of my branch, actually. It's one of the reasons I joined. Um, John, why do you think Manchester has this, this special, nay, spectacular beer scene today? How did we get here? Uh, I think Steph was very good to reference the uh, family brewers because they, unlike some parts of the country where the family brewers disappeared and the pubs are dominated by pub chains, We've avoided a kind of anonymous corporatism in our pub scene. We've still had a lot of individual pubs run by tenants of family brewers. And they all, and they all by and large, are passionate about their beer. And I think people in Manchester, for most parts of Manchester, are used to going to the pub and getting a good pint of beer in a characterful pub run by people who are at least keen on their beer, and I think that has spilled over in today's beer scene, whereby uh, we, it's, that I think has been a good grounding for the growth of the huge independent sector in Manchester as well. Like, for example, the growth of micro pubs and new bars. Although there's been a lot, since the 25 years that Marble's been around, there's been a huge number of pub closures. Uh, if you look at Manchester Centre, it's kind of a donut effect. There's a huge chunk a circle around Manchester where there's virtually no pubs at all. But beyond that, there are thriving pub scenes, thriving bosses, all the satellite towns have great pub scenes. It is down to the people as well. And I think, I think it's only somewhere that Manchester could host both Manchester being inside, the Cameroon Manchester being inside a festival, which is probably one of the most progressive Cameroon festivals in the country, and Indieman Beercom, which again, and let's face it, we all know the best session at Indieman Beacon is on Sunday when it's just locals there, don't we? I mean, uh, uh, that is well known. So yes, I think, I think the fact that Manchester can host those two, plus other big uh, beer festivals around too, the fact that they can exist in Greater Manchester side by side, I think really sums up the diversity and the openness, the openness of Manchester's beer drinkers to quality beer in all its various forms and I think it's that too because don't forget a lot of there's still although in some parts of the country uh, uh, the new beer scene is driven by perhaps uh, craft beer keg beers live beers there's a huge cask tradition in Manchester as well and a lot of virtually every brewery in Manchester has a couple of cask beers to its portfolio unless you specialise in something that doesn't go to cask like Manchester Union Lager so I think, the I think the, in Manchester, not only, there's a diversity in both the pubs, the beers they sell, and the brewers. And brewers also uh, reflect that diversity in their portfolios. So the whole thing comes together. With a, it's a, it's a uh, virtuous circle, really, uh, of uh, passion, enthusiasm, and innovation across the piece from breweries, pubs, and drinkers. I think that's what makes it so special in Greater Manchester. And it's, it's also worth pointing out that in this um, period of economic turmoil, Manchester's had three or four new breweries open in the last 12 months. Shaw Shop, Balance, this new Green Arches Brewery, which just appeared on Instagram from nowhere the other weekend yeah, in the old beatnik space. Yeah, big, that's big really trip, good news. Big it's... trip. It's, you know, th th there is a, a desire for, 
for, for more. Um, I, I think there's untapped potential in Manchester. And uh, it, you're right, Cask is at the heart of it. Um, and, and I think finally, after, after a craft beer explosion, a lot of people who came into beer over the last 10, 15 years and maybe got into beer, you know, speaking from personal experience, through American um, ideas and flavours... <laughs> Uh, and now realising that like, cask is essentially our national drink. It's, it's the most important foodstuff we, we make in the UK. Um, and I think that's having a, an effect. But, and, and the North and the Northwest in particular seems to have always known that. What I'm going to do now um, is if you have any questions, I will come into the audience for you. Uh, so if you would like to ask anything uh, to the panel, just raise your hand and I'll, I'll come and find you. Hello, yeah, so we, we've spoken a lot about how um, Marble was almost at this transitionary point of sort of bringing beer in the UK, kicking and screaming into the modern era. But uh, at the same time, and we've sort of alluded to this, it's, it's almost been the caretaker of traditional styles. And, and in Manchester, we have these family brewers that you've mentioned where the only dark beer that you can get is mild, you can't get a stout. Um, and... Marble is almost the missing link between the family brewers and these modern cask brewers with these traditional styles coming back like uh, milder boxcar is is really coming into its own. Um, Could you say anything about um, the importance of of preserving and building upon uh, these traditional styles and these traditional methods of serving like cask and marble's place in, uh, in, in looking after that? No, you are, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's a great point that marble is that sort of midway between the, the historic, the heritage of Manchester Brewing and what the uh, modernity of it is, is today. Um, and we respect and admire Mo both, and we, we attempt to produce beer that will please fans of both. Uh, in, in the past, we've done uh, brewed beers that are absolute love letters to... Uh, uh, historic classic beers like Fuller's ESB um, and and then also modern interpretations of it which is our extra some marble but also uh, it, it was doing the rounds on Twitter the, the, the other week um, about um, you'll have to you might have to help me out with John because I'm drawing a blank here but a prized old ale that's Gales we, yeah, Gales sorry. Nice old ale yeah. for anyone yes. listening this isn't yeah. John's voice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But he just looks a bit lost. I don't yeah. know the answer. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Thank you. So, um, so yeah, we, you know, we, we do look back a, a lot at, at the path that brought not just marble here, but the city of Manchester here and, and the brewing industry where it is. And of course, at the same time, we do look forward, as evidenced uh, with some of the beers that we are producing today. Um, you know, we will make very modern beers like um, like the sours that we do. Um, the dry hopping, even this version of Dobber, even though, yes, Dobber is a, a beer that is 25 years old, um, this modern version of it, as sure we've all tried today, it wouldn't look out of place in the lineup of, say, Track or Cloudwater or Rivington um, these days. So, no, you're, you're absolutely right, and I do agree with you that, that Marble is that kind of linchpin between, between past and future as, as far as Manchester Brewing goes. Any more questions? How long have Marble actually been brewing? I mean, I, don't, I know it's, this is 25 years, but 25 how, the, Marble, years. the Marble Arch has been 
around a, a little bit longer than that. I'd... Oh yeah, the, the, the Marble Arch, well, the, the pub building has been there for a very, very long time and John is the, the man to ask about the, that, but Marble itself has a brewery uh, 25 years. I, I th uh, the Marble Arch uh, started brewing when Marble Brewery set up and I think Marble Brewery, we covered it in the, I've got it at home, I think it was December 1997 edition of Opening Times, a magazine I edit. So I think it probably launched in early November 1997. Uh, the Marble Arch, as we know it today, appeared in 1982. It was been a Wilson's pub, and they sold it. And this guy called John Worthington bought the Marble Arch, uh, decided to renovate it, took all this plasterboard away, because it was just a two-room pub, took all this plasterboard and artificial floors away and uncovered all the interior which we know today. That had been covered up in the 1950s and nobody knew it was there. Was it, was it called the Marble Arch? No, it was called the Wellington. There is a fantastic history of marble written by the brilliant Lily Waite on Good Beer Hunting. And there is a great bit on that where she asked Jan how the brewery started because they were trying to get trade for the pub and there were two options to to buy a karaoke machine um and imagine that it would have been it, it, it would have probably still been an institution much like the millstone in the northern quarter but very different or buy a brewery and so they bought the the original i think three barrel kit that sat where the kitchen is now uh, i can only imagine what, what ch the challenges were brewing in that little kitchen I'll just put one more call out for any more questions for the panel. And if not, yep, one more. Uh, sorry, one, one, one quick last one. Um, we've, we've spoken about the sheer number of breweries in Manchester and how quickly they're coming about. They don't appear from nowhere. And John in particular, uh, I, I know as, uh, as John, have you, opened my, uh, have you entered my homebrew competition? Um, John, we have this sort of almost uh, graduation of, of home brewers into some of the biggest and best known breweries in the UK. Um, and, and you've been probably central to that for a long period of time. And uh, yeah, um, um, how, how, how do you see uh, that part of the Manchester beer scene and the, the, the people getting into uh, the, the, this uh, whole sort of culture of, of new breweries in Manchester? Uh, quite a lot of the uh, good new brewers in Manchester, uh, a lot of the brewers are former home brewers. Uh, in and around, you've got Torside out in New Mills, where you've got uh, First Class. I know Matt Dutton, who's the head brewer at Track, I believe. He's a, he won home brew competitions. So, yes, uh, the, home, the, <coughs> the very vibrant uh, local home brewing scene has spawned a lot of good local brewers, either brewing in their own right or working for the breweries. So, so I, I think the two work in hand in hand. I think if you get a vibrant home brew scene, which comes first, chicken and egg, does a vibrant independent beer scene inspire home brew scene or vice versa? I think they work in tandem. Definitely. You've got people like, uh, like Ventile as well, oh, yeah. down in Reddish. Um, and uh, Beer Nouveau, of course, uh, sadly... Leaving us, allegedly, but and, we'll see. And, and, the, and the guys at Steelfish who've gone from strength to strength, they're both two former home brewers. Absolutely. I, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if this is the case for any of the Manchester ones, but to put a slightly silver lining on the, the country's economic position at the minute, uh, there was a 
big boom in home brewers becoming brewery owners when lots of people got made redundant in the city in 2008. So very possibly there could be a new wave of those breweries. I And some of them are good and some of them are not. So <laughs> I always like to end on a nice optimistic note. So I think Sorry. that's a really <laughs> lovely way to round up this uh, panel discussion. Thank you, John. Thank you, Steph. Thank you, Jason. Could you give them a round of applause? And thank you for being a wonderful audience. It's a real privilege to get to discuss one of the richest beer cultures within the UK with three such knowledgeable people. Thanks again to Jason, Stephanie and John for joining me on that panel. And thanks to Marble Brewery who have supported Pellicle for a long time as pro Patreon supporters and in general have supported my writing. So really appreciate you having me down and a very belated happy 25th anniversary. I'm really looking forward to what's coming in the future of your brewery as well. Don't forget that Pellicle is a completely independent reader-supported publication and you can support this podcast and our written content on pelliclemag.com by taking out a monthly or yearly subscription on Patreon, which is what we use to accrue subscriptions. If you head to patreon.com forward slash pelliclemag, you can sign up to make a donation from as little as a pound a month or more if you can afford it. And all of that money goes into paying our contributors. That's the writers, photographers, illustrators and our small editorial team that makes Pellicle happen. And if you can't afford that, there are other ways you can support this podcast, such as leaving us a review or just pressing the five stars or however many stars you wish to bestow upon us in your podcast app of choice. As what that'll do is it'll make your podcast app recommend this show to people who listen to other beer podcasts and the like and help us get more listeners, which we would really appreciate. That's it from me for today, but I'll be back in a few weeks with another interview I recorded a few months ago. I think it's one of my favourite interviews I've ever recorded. It's with Theo Freen, who is the founder and managing director at Cheltenham's Daya Brewing Company. And it was a really interesting and insightful conversation. So I'm excited to publish that in the next two or three weeks. And after that, I've actually worked through all of my recordings. So I might record one of my lengthy monologues. I've not done one of those in a while and I've got a few subjects bubbling away at the back of my brain so maybe I'll find the time to do one of those in between working on my manuscript. Thanks again for tuning in. You have been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm Matthew Curtis and I will see you right here next time. Bye bye for now. Bye.